case. Hope Not Hate are basically controlling Britain. Hope Not Hate, an alluring name for those more concerned about social justice than truth. These backward, these backward thinking, virtue, sick, virtue signaling, fake news credit. Yeah. <laughs> Hi, I'm Afrida, Activism and Operations Officer at Hope Not Hate. I wanted to share with you this discussion that our researcher Safiya Kanruf had in November 2020 during Islamophobia Awareness Month. While we are approaching the end of a turbulent year that has to some degree altered the focus of the far right, long-term prejudice against Muslims has not gone away. From the horrific and ongoing genocide of the Uyghur in China to the persistent prejudice, hate crime and hate speech perpetrated against Muslims, both here and elsewhere, it's crucial that we keep up the pressure against anti-Muslim hate. With your help, Hope Not Hate will be doing more to combat this prejudice in the new year, and to that end, please share this podcast as widely as you can. We are grateful to the League of British Muslims for hosting this conversation. Yusuf Patel, MBE, Chairs while Councillor Jas Akbal, Dr. Jennifer Philippa Eggert, and Mufti Ahmed Birbhai all contribute important perspectives on this issue along with Sophia. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for joining us for this important event on challenging Islamophobia and anti-Muslim hatred today. I'm really proud that in January 2019, the Council unanimously agreed to adopt the all-party parliamentary definition of Islamophobia as being rooted in racism and a type of racism that targets expressions of Muslimness or perceived Muslimness. In recent times, we have seen far-right far movements emboldened, uh, Islamic, Islamophobic incidents rise and anti-Muslim sentiments grow. We have seen the media indiscriminately target minority communities, including my own, as well as my friends in the Muslim community. We have seen politicians use Muslim community to pander to the far right. Our own prime minister describing Muslim women in veils as letterboxes. We've seen rampant Islamophobia in the Conservative Party called out by their own former minister. I was also devastated and furious to learn last week that more than a third of Muslim Labour members and supporters have witnessed Islamophobia in the Labour Party. It is entirely unacceptable. We all must do more. As a society, as a local authority, as political parties, we must do more. I must do more as council leader. Islamophobia or any form of hatred must not be allowed to fester and grow. I'm proud to have 17 Muslim councillors here in Redbridge. I'm proud of my diverse cabinet. And most importantly, I'm proud to be leader of the third most diverse borough in the entire country. Our multi-ethnic and multi-religious communities are rightly celebrated and championed here in Redbridge. We respect one another. We stand together in making it very clear any form of hate will never be tolerated. I'm committed to working with our communities to ensure we challenge such hatred. And I will use my office to do my utmost to stand with the victims of hate. I commit to using my office to ensure we educate our future our young people in partnership with organizations like the uh, Anne Frank Trust and Hope Not Hate, who are currently working in schools across the borough. 
it's through education, through mutual understanding and compassion that we can stamp out the causes of racism and certainly prevent its hateful consequences. That is the truth that we need to get to. Unfortunately, today I'm unable to stay for the whole event due to other meetings. Nonetheless, I know it's being recorded and I will watch it later and catch up with Yusuf to understand your views because it's really important we get to understand those views. So in conclusion, thank you all for joining us and I'd like to hand over to Yusuf, who is chairing this evening's event. Thank you for joining us and let's root out this evil. Thank you. Thank you, Councillor Atwell, and for taking some time out to join us here today. As you rightly said, um, unfortunately, Islamophobia and other forms of hatred ha incidents have risen across the country and around the world. And we all need to do more to challenge such hatred. And I know we're committed in Redbridge to doing that and working with partners across the board to work together to ensure we challenge these forms of hatred head on. I'd also like to take an opportunity to thank our partners for today's event, um, NAS Legacy Foundation and League of British Muslims and the Mayor's Office as well. Our next speaker, well not speaker, but reciter, um, I'm delighted to welcome today Kari Usman Bostansi. Um, he recently completed his master's at SOAS University and is a world-renowned Quran reciter. Today he will recite some verses of the Quran and share some reflections and their meanings in light of today's event. Thank you, Kari Usman. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. A'udhu billahi minash shaytanir rajeem. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Ya
أَسْلَمْنَا وَلَمَّا يَدْخُلِ الْإِيمَانُ فِي قُلُوبِكُمْ وَإِن تُطِيعُوا اللَّهَ وَرَسُولَهُ لَا يَلِتْكُمْ مِنْ أَعْمَالِكُمْ شَيْئًا إِنَّ اللَّهَ غَفُورٌ رَّحِيمٌ وَجَاهَدُوا بِأَمْوَالِهِمْ وَأَنفُسِهِمْ فِي سَبِيلِ والله بكل شيء عليم يمنون عليك أن أسلموا
Sadaqallahu'l-Azim. And I recited from Surah Hujurat. Uh, at first, thanks for our joining, for our meeting. Uh, I recited from the Surah Hujurat that Allah says that informs all humankind, not just for believers, but all the humankind. He says that, oh humanity, indeed, we created you from a male and a female and made you into peoples and tribes so that you may get to know one another. Surely the most noble of you in the sight of Allah is the most righteous among you. Allah is truly all-knowing, all-aware. And I would like to point out these verses because there are different topics outside of the verses. But Allah says that we created you male and a female so that you can get to know each other. This is the essence of the religion of Islam and the essence of the humanity that all of us need to know. Inshallah, may Allah make us among those who know these noble and wise, comprehensible uh, things from the Quran for the all humankind. Thank, thanks a lot, all of you. Thank you, Kali Usman, for that beautiful recitation. I know we've been flooded with um, comments to the panelists. Um, it's really an honor to have you here. I'd like to, first of all, welcome our first speaker for today, Dr. Jennifer Egger, who'll be focusing her talk uh, for a while on Islamophobia in media and online. Dr. Jennifer is a senior researcher associate at the Joint Learning Initiative Faith and Local Communities. She's also a research advisor at the Women Muslim Advocacy Project and a non-executive director at We Rise. It's an absolute honor to have Dr. Jennifer join us today and I'm sure we'll find her take on the media and online very interesting. Thank you. Thank you so much, Yusuf. Um, the honor is all mine. Hello, everyone. Salam alaikum. Um, from my living room to yours. Um, so as Yusuf has mentioned, I was asked to speak as, about Islamophobia and the media and online. Um, I've taken the liberty to expand that a little um, because I actually believe that what we see in the media and what we see online um, is just a reflection of what happens offline. So if you look at the two um, areas, we really need to look at them both. Um, also, my background is in gender, so I thought I'd add that as well. Um, and then I thought, as an academic, um, my natural inclination um, would be to bombard you with technical terms and with numbers to really highlight um, how serious of an issue it is that we're looking at. Um, but then I thought maybe sometimes what is much more effective than all these um, technical terms and official government figures and what have you is to actually tell a story. So I thought I'll do that instead. And I thought I'll tell you the story of this Muslim woman who wakes up in the morning, um, prays or doesn't pray, um, has breakfast or doesn't have breakfast, and then um, thinks about bills and thinks about um, what she's going to put in her kid's lunchbox. She thinks about what she's going to make for dinner. She thinks about this really important meeting at work. She thinks about when on earth this lockdown is going to end um, and when the constructors are finally going to come over to fix that leak in her living room. She then turns on the radio and she hears about yet another attack in London. Um, and she is madly worried about her friends in London and messages them, checks if everyone is okay. 
at the same time, she starts praying that it was not a Muslim perpetrator. She feels a bit guilty about that because of really like, should it make a difference? Um, but then she knows from personal experience that it does make a difference. And she knows that there is gonna be a backlash. She knows that the numbers of hate crimes committed and attempted hate crimes against people who look like her and her family is gonna go up. And then it turns out it was indeed um, an Islamist motivated um, terrorist attack. And what happens next is that she is flooded with stupid, racist, Islamophobic narratives in the media and online. And um, it's painful, um, but quite frankly, she's used to it. Um, Councillor, at the beginning um, of the webinar, he mentioned um, these um, infamous comments of our prime minister who um, thought it was appropriate to compare Muslim women who decide to wear the niqab with letterboxes. Um, I do remember another previous prime minister who spoke about them as traditionally submissive. And I challenge you to tell my father that this is how they speak about Muslim women in this country. He's gonna have such a good laugh. So she goes on with her day, she shares her work online and she gets attacked on the basis of her faith, right? Because people do not like Muslim women speaking up. They do not like Muslim women owning their own stories and their own narratives. She watches TV, she reads newspaper articles where she finds an awful lot of people who are not Muslim women, but who think um, they know best what Muslim women are going through and what needs to change and how they are affected. And in some ways, a lot of what she sees in the mainstream media in that regard reminds her of events, strangely reminds her of events within Muslim communities where she is also quite often sidelined and not really listened to. Um, she remembers that when she or her brothers, fathers, sons, um, friends, um, arrive at an airport, back home, she's again randomly selected, they are again randomly selected, and um, how often can we repeat um, the random nature of that? How often can we really? She knows that her kids in school and her brother who's going to see um, a counselor, she knows that all of them are at risk um, of getting um, a call from um, counter-terrorism um, officials just because you said the wrong thing that you are not supposed to say as the Muslim in school or when And actually when you get a call that's, um, that's still a preferable option, um, much better than them just um, crashing through your door at the crack of dawn, traumatizing you and your entire family. She walks home in the evening and she wears a hood She's been wearing a hood, a coat with a hood for years because she knows that that gives her the opportunity to quickly disguise her visible identity as a Muslim woman so that at least for a couple of moments she can feel safe. She does know that one of the first victims of Islamophobia, both in online and offline spaces, both in social media, uh, conventional media um, and on the streets, are Muslim women. Um, for very specific reasons, because they tend to be much more visible than men and also because they are often perceived as a particularly easy target um, because they're perceived due to their gender um, to be weaker. So it's literally everywhere. It's literally everywhere. It's in the media, it's on um, 
on TV, it's in the newspapers, it's on social media, it's on the streets, it's um, in schools, it's, um, it's your, own, your own government that perpetuates these stereotypes. Um, and this Islamophobia, it is everywhere. And even if you're not physically harmed, it does take an emotional toll. And it can be extremely exhausting to be a Muslim woman in this country. Mm, when we're really just trying to live our lives, right? Lives that are tiring enough in the current climate um, of austerity, of cuts here and there and everywhere, mm, even worse now with the pandemic. Mm, so quite often as a Muslim woman in this country, it can feel like you're being squeezed from the left and the right, mm, from people in your own community, mm, from people in um, the rest of society, from the very people who should actually protect um, you, who should work with you, who should um, take your needs and your wants and homes and treats into account. Mm. And then we can take it one step further and we can say, this is what many, if not most Muslim women in this country face. Um, but then our experience are also, they are also different in some ways. Um, in discussions about Muslim women in this country, it often feels a bit like all Muslims, um, Muslim women are South Asian Muslim women. Um, just like in discussions about Muslims in general, there's often an assumption that people, um, that it's people from a certain cultural background. And it's very, very misleading mm, because we are a tiny bit more diverse than that. And yes, the majority of us might have origins in um, Pakistan, India, Bangladesh, um, but we come from so many more places in the world. and um, a lot of the debates and a lot of the initiatives to try and tackle issues such as Islamophobia, they just don't um, reflect that. And it's actually really, really, really harmful. And that's just race and ethnicity, right? We can also speak about class, we can speak about um, education, we can speak about factors such as faith practice, right? So who do we actually mean when we speak about Muslims? Do we include cultural Muslims? Do we include ex-Muslims? So there's a whole um, different debate to have there. And we cannot really speak about Islamophobia. We cannot really try to tackle Islamophobia without taking all of these into account. That's the question I think we need to ask ourselves. That's the background of how Islamophobia in the media online and offline does affect a lot of us. So let's bear that in mind when we speak about these questions. It's not just numbers. It's not just figures. It's not just fancy terms. It's actually people's lives. And are we bearing the diversity um, and the complexity of the issue in mind? Are we really speaking with and for and about all of these women? Do we include them in the initiatives aimed at tackling the issue? Do we include them from the very beginning when we start to plan these issues, when we start identifying issues all the way through um, the implementation of projects to um, dissemination? Or do we just say, oh, oh, wait a second, we actually need a Muslim woman, right? to sit on our panel, let's just bring her in. No, this is not enough. And they need to be included from the very beginning to the end. Um, otherwise, quite frankly, we won't get very, um, very far and not particularly interested. Um, yeah, so in a nutshell, um, that's it. I'm not sure if I'm within my time limit, but I'll just stop here. Thank you, Dr. Jennifer, for that really insightful little talk. And you're absolutely right, human lives at the core of this and we need to think about you know when the media and political leaders make certain comments what are the ramifications of that when the media put something out there that targets an entire community what does it lead to because it leads to Islamophobic incidents and 
one thing that you passionately spoke about throughout your talk is women and the role women have. And you're absolutely spot on. I see it far too many times that there's an event talking about all sorts of things and it's a male dominant panel. Why are there no women as part of the conversation? We need to know from everyone and their experience and draw on their expertise as well. So I'm quite proud to have two women on our panel today and I'm sure we're going to learn a lot from you and take a lot from you as well. Our next speaker is Mufti Ahmed Birbai, who is an Imam and the Community Cohesion Lead at um, the Green Academy Trust in Nottingham. He's also the independent member of the Cross-Government Anti-Muslim Hatred Working Group. I know the Imam has been doing some brilliant work in Nottingham and beyond. I've been speaking to people <clears> today <throat> and all they've been saying, saying to me is, we love Mufti Ahmed, we can't believe you've got him to speak at your event. So we're honoured to have him here and over to you, Imam. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah and good evening to all participants. Uh, thanks Yusuf for this really important event. Um, I've got a presentation to deliver so I'm just going to crack on with that. Um, my, my segment today is going to be focusing on uh, challenging Islamophobic rhetoric. Just about a bit about myself, some background. So uh, I'm the Imam at the Green Academy Trust Mosque in Nottingham. Um, my focus is on community cohesion. We do mosque open days. I visit schools, university, public events. I do a lot of training, uh, Islamic awareness training, and I've delivered training to police officers, council, teachers, faith groups, fire service, priests, MPs, counselors, university students, and uh, other community groups, uh, groups uh, as well. As I mentioned to you, community cohesion is a central part of uh, my job and also Islam. Uh, so we have certain projects like Islam is Warmth, Christmas Care Home uh, Visits, uh, Spring Litter Picking, etc. Um, there are various uh, bodies which I am part of. So I am a um, member of the Government Working Group on Islamophob Islam uh, Islamophobia, the Anti-Muslim Hatred Working Group. I'm a police chaplain for Nottinghamshire Police. I also sit on another national advisory group, which is a Moscow advisory group. There's also locally a PCC, so the Police and Crime Commissioners Consultative Group. So I, I am one of the members and we advise the PCC on issues related to Islam, Islamophobia, anti-Muslim hatred. Also, the Nottingham City Council has a faith group. I am also part of that. Currently, we are discussing R RSC and other issues. Um, I am one of the trustees for Nottingham Council of Mosques. Um, um, and I am part of a local women's network, um, part of Interfaith Council and also Nottingham citizens. Uh, so these are some of the groups where, which I am part of. Okay, so um, essentially today, I think uh, in, in my experience dealing with Islamophobia, anti-Muslim hatred for the last seven years, I think it all boils down to a lack of understanding and awareness about Islam. And this is, I think, reflected in this maxim, Arabic maxim, which says that uh, people are afraid of what they do not know. So I think the, the best way of tackling anti-Muslim anti, anti hatred and Islamophobia is to educate people about what Islam is about and the true uh, compassionate, merciful nature of, of Islam. Um, so um, <clears throat> now, in specific, the specific ste steps uh, I've, I've come across um, in uh, uh, some research conducted, uh, led by uh, the Counter Islamophobia Kit. So it's called the Counter Islamophobia Kit. It is led by the University of Leeds. Um, it's a pan-European research project uh, looking at um, eight, focusing on eight 
uh, European countries and how they tackle Islamophobia. So some of the points which I picked out and I'd like to focus on the following three. So um, best way to identify, uh, best way to tackle Islamophobia, anti-Muslim hatred and challenge the anti-Muslim hatred, anti-Muslim rhetoric would be to identify it, call it out, uh, deconstruct the narratives and then reconstruct fair and accurate narratives. So let's look at them uh, one by one. Um, so identifying Islamophobia. So uh, disclaimer, um, to criticize Islam, we all accept is not Islamophobic. However, um, to, to deride Islam, to single out Muslims uh, and to incite hatred uh, is Islamophobic. And that's what the focus is on, to, is to deride Islam, to single out Muslims and incite hatred. If someone uh, doesn't agree with a part of Islam, no problem. You know, is Islam is very pluralistic in nature. Prophet showed and demonstrated how he accepted and tolerant, tolerated a difference of opinion, difference of faith, etc., etc. So it's about focusing on singling out Muslims and inciting hatred and animosity towards Muslims. And that's what Islam is, Islamopho Islamophobia is. Um, a rule of thumb, if you replace the word Muslim in a statement with another minority, how does it sound? So if, for example, if you say, oh, Jewish women or Jewish men, or Judaism or Christianity, how does it sound? It sounds abhorrent, it sounds decisive, it sounds anti-Semitic, it sounds wrong. And that's what um, that's what is, is for Muslims as well. So when you replace the word Muslim in a statement with another minority, if it sounds abhorrent and unacceptable, then it should also be unacceptable to describe describe Muslims and portray Muslims in that way. Um, so politicians, media justify anti-Muslim rhetoric with the excuse of combating terrorism, uh, extremism, they say it's uh, freedom of speech. Uh, but what happens uh, in essence is that they normalize Islamophobia and perpetuate myths. So that's one thing that although politicians and the media um, uh, regurgitates uh, this anti-Muslim rhetoric, it needs to be identified that it's anti-Muslim, Islamophobic, and we need to challenge that. Um, some of the things, so associating Islam with the actions of criminals, so that's clearly Islamophobic. You know, if a Muslim uh, does that, Islam goes on trial. We, we know that very clearly with the media, negative media portrayal of Muslims and Islam. So, for example, uh, Muslim uh, Muslims and only focusing on Muslims when they commit terror attacks. If you really look at the data, um, that most terror attacks are not committed actually by Muslims. Uh, grooming, yes, you'll get uh, some individuals, sick, uh, perverted individuals from the Muslim um, community who uh, sexualize and, and who groom underage children and who are involved in the sexual exploitation of children. But that does not to say that Islam teaches them this or Islam encourages them this. Of course, Islam does not. So when you focus on Muslims for terror attacks, when you focus on Muslims for grooming, when you're uh, blaming Muslims even for COVID-19, we, 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 like in Leicester, I'm, I'm from Leicester, we see the comment sections of the local paper. You have so many, so many comments uh, for blaming, uh, is, uh, blaming the uh, spread of um, the COVID um, uh, on, on, on Muslims. Um, and blaming Muslims for this. So th these are all uh, this are all anti-Muslim rhetoric. Uh, domestic violence. When 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 Muslims are involved in domestic violence, then the faith is blamed. When Muslims are involved in crime, then the faith is blamed. So when you focus on Muslims for terror attacks, grooming, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, so that's a sign that this is uh, anti-Muslim rhetoric, and th this is one way to identify uh, Islamophobia. When you see an, a certain individual or group or community focusing on Muslims and blaming Muslims um, for for terror attacks, for grooming, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. not to say that from the Muslim community, you don't have people who commit terror. Of course you do, but that's got nothing to do with the teachings of Islam. Um, 
so that's some of the ways to identify Islamophobia. Uh, yeah, and also to make sweeping judgments on the Quran and aspects of Islam without actually understanding them. For example, saying that is, uh, the Quran is violent, Sharia law is barbaric, without really understand, understanding what Sharia law is. Um, in fact, as an Imam, I speak to many, I speak to many, many Muslim uh, Muslims, and they themselves are not aware of the compassionate nature of of, of Sharia law. Um, sometimes when I so one time I, I recall I done a uh, training event for police officers, and I said to them that oh you know as a joke at the beginning that you actually implement Sharia law. They were like aghast at what we implement Sharia law, and then I explained what Sharia law is about. Sharia law is about peace. Sharia law is about uh, pre, uh, 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 Sharia law is about respect. Sharia law is about safety and community and uh, to, at the end of the presentation they accepted that yes uh, we do uh, the essence and the nature of, of Sharia law we, we this is in conformity with, with British values. Um, furthermore um, mocking Islamic dress and acts of worship like we have unfortunately our our Prime Minister he mocked uh, the Muslim dress for women calling them bank robbers and um, and, and, and letterboxes um, and acts of worship so this actually dehumanizes uh, women and it leads to violence as you know um, so uh, there was a spike in in uh, violence towards women uh, once after the prime minister called uh, Muslim women uh, letterboxes I know of a case in Leicester um, where a, a sister she had uh, letters thrown at her um, because and this was a week after the prime minister Boris Johnson uh, decided to write an article in which where he uh, referred to in a very derogatory manner uh, he mocked Muslim women and he called them letterboxes. So this is uh, mocking Islamic dresses, it's not freedom of speech, it's not um, anything else, it's simply insulting and making uh, and inciting uh, acts of violence towards Muslims and uh, minorities. Um, perpetuating myth of Islamization and clash of civilizations. So to say that all oh, Muslims are taking over, mosques are taking over, etc, etc. These are, this is all anti-Muslim uh, rhetoric. One other way to identify anti-Muslim rhetoric is uh, an Islamophobia is where you have tolerance of other scriptures, but you are intolerant of the Quran. Uh, so to say that, to say that uh, Quran, the Quran teaches this and there are certain uh, uh, verses in the Quran which allude to violence or which um, are um, contrary to British values but then if you look at other scriptures uh, they you can find many verses and many points which are also questionable in the same manner but if you tolerate other faiths and other scriptures but you're intolerant of the Quran um, then that is clearly Islamophobic um, and to claim that Islam is inherently incompatible with British values, but other faiths are similar to the previous point that where you say that Islam is inherently incompatible with British values because of X, Y and Z, but other faiths, you ignore uh, those similar points of other faith. So some practical steps, how can we challenge this some practical steps, uh, obviously speak out against it in the workplace, social media, friends right to political parties. Uh, we know even in the Labour Party, there's a lot of Muslims are uh, leaving because of the way they are concerned. Just today, we, I was informed of a journalist who's looking to um, speak to Muslim, um, Muslim uh, former Muslim members of the Labour Party and why they've left. So, so if you're a member of the 
a political party and you see that there is Islamophobia in that party, then write to them. So that's one way to speak out against it. Um, show support to the victims. So there are a lot of bystander intervention programs. Um, uh, so, so support the victim. Um, highlight the impact of Islamophobia on victims. Testimonies are very powerful. Um, so these are some practical steps. Um, I, I'm going through this uh, quite quickly, but just to show here, mockery leads to its discrimination and violence. If you look at uh, anti-Semitism just before, um, during the Nazi period, uh, Nazi Germany's dehumanization of Jews through mockery, insult, and derision. So the cuts in uh, Therential, uh, Erenthal collection is a Jewish, uh, is a collection of over 900 objects depicting anti-Jewish propaganda. And it's all, it's all about how uh, in the Nazi era, they used, um, they used uh, art and visual expressions of uh, anti-Jewish uh, uh, to, to, to promote anti-Jewish hatred. So I, unfortunately, we see this um, taking place uh, for Muslims in this era now. Um, so this is something here again. So we, we know we can recognize um, Muslim women uh, with a burqa, but do you know the top right-hand corner, uh, that's actually Jewish women. Um, and that is called a frumka. If you just Google up Frumka and go on the images section, you'll see lots of images where uh, Jewish ladies, this is from a uh, Orthodox Jewish community in Israel, where they wear the Frumka, which is totally acceptable. But if Boris Johnson called them uh, bank robbers, and if Boris Johnson called them um, uh, letterboxes, there would be an uproar and rightly so. It's wrong to call Jewish ladies who wear this Frumka um, to call them and insult them, and it's wrong to call Muslims this as well. Um, you see, this is Prince Charles, and behind him he has um, he has uh, he he has a group of uh, Orthodox Christian nuns. Um, so they dress in that manner as well. But can you see uh, when it comes to Islam, Muslim women who choose to wear the burqa or the niqab are considered to be oppressed, but uh, Jewish ladies or Catholic nuns, uh, Orthodox Jews, um, Orthodox Christian nuns, when they wish to wear what they wear, then that's considered to be uh, devotion, that's considered to be a tradition. But what should, what my point here is that if you take issue with Muslims wearing a certain dress, but don't take issues with other communities wearing a certain dress, then that's clearly Islamophobic and anti-Muslim anti hatred. Um, so couple of ways to deconstruct. Um, I think I have possibly run over my time. So I'm just going to be very brief in the next two minutes. Deconstructing Islamophobic nar narratives. So um, if you present data, uh, data will demonstrate that majority of terror attacks are not actually related to Islam uh, or Muslims. Um, also, compare. So let, let's look at some of the data. Uh, this is from Europol. Uh, Muslims are only responsible for 0.7% of attacks between uh, 2006 and 2013. Uh, this is um, a bit more recent, uh, again from Europol, uh, 2015, 2016, 2017, 2018. If you present data, it clearly shows that Muslims are not responsible for most of the attacks. You look in America, um, all the way until 2017, uh, right-wing terrorism and murder is by far uh, responsible for more uh, by, by, so right-wing attacks uh, and right-wing movements are by far responsible for more killings than 
Islam and Muslims are. Um, so presenting data is a very powerful way of combating, uh, deconstructing Islamophobic narratives. Uh, also com compare comparison with other faiths show that Islam is actually compatible with British values. Um, study of Prophet Muhammad's life and teachings, uh, critical, critical analysis of women in other faiths and cultures. And then you'll see that what the position, uh, the honorable position Islam actually affords women. Um, and uh, challenge people how much they truly know about Sharia and Quran. Where do they get their understanding from Quran, uh, from about Islam? Do they get it from the media? When I do my training, uh, I usually ask that where do you, uh, as part of the feedback form, where do you get your training from or where do you get your understanding from? And 95% of the respondents say that most of their information comes from the media. They hardly, very few of them actually meet Muslims and those who do meet Muslims do so in a very uh, professional and uh, professional manner. Um, so not not really experiencing Islam as a faith. Um, so yeah, and then learn some counter, um, uh, uh, short counter facts about Islam. For example, 15 verses out of 6,600 verses, you only may have a problem with. Majority of the Quran does not talk about um, war, does not talk about uh, penal uh, uh, Sharia or Hudud, um, the penal code. Um, only 2% of Sharia law deals with punishments. Um, so the point here is to reconstruct that and finally reconstruct um, positive narratives. Uh, I think what the point here I want to make here is a, a narrative of unity. So we are all united against all forms of extremism. Uh, so some ways that uh, arrange Islam, Islamic awareness events, mosque visits, uh, etc. Because ignorance breeds hatreds. There, there should be a full stop after mosque visits. So ignorance breeds hatred. So uh, those Muslims and those people who are in the community and who have access to, a, um, uh, who are part of a mosque, arrange visits, uh, arrange community iftars, etc. Uh, refer to Islamic scholarship about sensitive topics. So for example, jihad, RSC, Sharia law. What does Islam actually say about this? I know uh, Yusuf last week or the week before he arranged a um, event talking and focusing on analyzing the those verses of the Quran which actually talk about jihad. And when you contextualize them, they really make sense and they don't seem as how the media portrays them. Uh, highlight similarities between Islam, Judaism, and Christianity. And that goes a long way to demonstrate that Islam is actually compatible with. British values and Islam actually come from the same source as Judaism and Christianity. Do we know that more than 35 verses of the of 35 places in the Quran, we are told to believe in the previous scriptures. Um, showcase um, uh, Muslim uh, and co co contribution, past and current contribution, showcase Muslim women in a variety of occupations. So we've got two, uh, two, three lovely women to the Dr. Jennifer um, and, and Sister Sophia. So they are, they are panelists today. So, um, um, and think I'm just going to come to the end to this and promote faith, promote and participate in interfaith events. I think that's the most important uh, thing here. Um, thank you all. Um, I'm not sure if I, I, I'm pretty sure that I've gone past my time, but um, I hope that was uh, some. I hope that was that was informative um, and give you some ideas of how to combat anti-anti-Muslim uh, hatred. Thank you. Thank you, Imam, for that very important presentation. I think it was really important. Some of the things I picked up off it of was the negative headlines regarding COVID. And one of the things that we do not highlight enough is the positive contribution of Muslim communities across the country, from food banks and working with hospitals. I know in Redbridge, um, some of our local mosques 
groups uh, and communities like Federation of British Muslim Organizations, FORMAL, have done some fantastic work. And the affiliates like Balfour Road Mosque and Ilford Islamic Center, amongst many others, have done fantastic work for our communities, yet we don't speak about this enough. So yes, Muslims might be um, the first ones to get blamed for carrying COVID and spreading COVID, but what about the fantastic work Muslim communities are doing to support the most vulnerable during the most difficult times? Um, we are quite behind time, so I'm gonna stop babbling on and hand over to Sefia from Hope Not Hate, who's a journalist and researcher. Um, she's absolutely fantastic. What I will say is, um, check her Twitter out. She's done some fantastic um, pieces on the current situation in France at the moment. And she's here today to talk about France and the far right. Thank you, Sophia. Uh, thanks, Yusuf. Salam alaikum. Good evening. I'm just putting a timer. I'm going to try and stick to eight minutes. Uh, we'll see if that works. I'm, I'm going to be covering so the far right, the UK, France, COVID. Um, yep, so let's get right into it. Um, if you wanna know more about Hope Not Hate, um, as Yusuf said, check out the website, check out Twitter, um, and there's even a fundraising uh, event on Zoom at the end of the month on the 30th. I'm really glad I remembered to mention that. Um, so I'll get right into it. So first, when we talk about the far right, what do we mean? Uh, we're, it's, it's an umbrella term, that's for sure, and like many umbrella terms, actually, like Islamophobia, when you say far right, it includes like democratic, radical right, extreme far right, and technically it's everyone whose political outlook is to the right or more extreme than the center right. And there's usually a few, um, a common set of beliefs when it comes to the far right, and that's uh, a belief in nationalism rather than just patriotism, uh, a belief that the nation is in crisis and radical action needs to be taken, um, and also a sense of superiority depending on where, where you go in the spectrum. So in the UK, if you look at traditional far right political parties, they're relatively weak. Well, they're probably the weakest they've been in a long while. But when you look at the online uh, uh, setting, they have never been more powerful. So why do we care? I mean, if it was just a small group of people, you know, a, a, a tiny percentage point who were writing horrible things on in the corner of the internet, it wouldn't really have an impact on our life. The problem is, well, there's several problems when it comes to the far right, but the, one of the main problems is when ideas from the far right are mainstreamed and then used by the general public. So you have influencers, I think that's the best word for them, so-called politicians, the Nigel Farages of the world and, you know, YouTube stars who are set in the far right and who spread these ideas when it comes to Islamophobia. So uh, Dr. Jennifer spoke about Islamophobia in the media and she's absolutely right. And online, it's the same thing, especially media and online. Those are two can create a toxic combination. So you have far right websites like Breitbart in the US that are constantly pushing out these narratives and also just fake news when it comes to Muslims. And this just slowly or quickly, depending on if there's an incident happening at the same time, can spread into the mainstream. And that's when you get 
the general public believing some crazy things about Muslims. So, for example, Hope Not Hate did some polling in July of this year about the Conservative Party because we're working on addressing the Islamophobia within the Conservative Party. I'm not going to give you lots of numbers, but nearly half saw Islam as a threat to their way of life and more than half believed in no-go zones where non-Muslims cannot venture in Britain. And Conservative members were more than doubly likely to think that Islamist terrorists reflected a widespread hostility community towards Britain than the average general public. So it's the, the issue is not a small far-right group. It's the whole spectrum and how it spreads and what's acceptable to say. So the shifting of that Overton window where what, and that's one of the reasons why it's so important when you see it within the mainstream, when you see it with politicians and whether it's the Conservative Party or the Labour Party to challenge it, because as soon as it's acceptable for those politicians to say it and it's not challenged, then there's a new level of acceptability. So the second or the third or the fourth, I don't know which one I'm on, danger when it comes to the far right is when you have politicians who are more on the centre aping, mimicking their rhetoric to garner votes. So a good example of that is France. I mean, some might disagree, but when Macron, the leader of France, came out with this separatism bill to so-called fight Islamism, um, many uh, analysts just put that link that to the fact that he's facing an election in 2022, and one of the main contenders that's like neck to neck with him is the Rassemblement National leader, the far right leader, uh, Marine Le Pen. And then you have uh, horrible horrible actions, such as the beheading of Samuel Paty, the, the teacher in France uh, linked to the, the whole cartoon issue, which I'm probably, Yusuf is probably going to talk about some more, so I'll skip ahead. But when, when that happened, Marine Le Pen came out and said, okay, we need to ban all headscarves in France. I mean, very special case because, you know, whenever something happens, the headscarf is the first thing to, to come up. But it, it, it showed the far-right narrative. And then on the other hand, you had non-far-right politicians like uh, Gérard Darmanin, who was the uh, interior minister, talking, criticizing halal food in supermarkets and how it's creating um, separate communities. So it's, I mean, France, as always, remains a special case, but this kind of outdoing of each other, of if the far right says this, then I must say this, otherwise I won't look hard enough on terrorism, is another big danger. Moving swiftly to COVID. So COVID, we've probably all heard too much about it, but researchers have shown the environment it's created, um, the catalyst that it has created, are very dangerous when it comes to radicalization. So personal loss, uh, the psychological burden, the economic instability created by the pandemic have led to greater radicalization and also the fact of lockdowns and people just spending a lot more time on the internet. So th since the beginning, they've warned about the far right exploiting this for their own political ends. So for example, when you research online uh, what far right parties have been saying over the last few months, there's the idea that um, immigrants are arriving with the virus to kill whites. There's the idea that Muslims or other minority groups are purposefully passing the virus to um, 
uh, well, conquer the land by infecting white populations. So, I mean, uh, warning for hate, but some of the comments you can find are they're trying to kill off as many people as possible. And these are spread in, a, in, in an environment where there's already a lot of fear and, and, and confusion and people not accepting crazy things more easily just because of the craziness of the situation. So this constant sharing, I mean, in the UK, we've seen how it's uh, how it happened with, um, you know, fake news about mosques being open and spreading the coronavirus. Tommy Robinson, you know, a favorite far right figure, he shared a false video showing British Muslims breaking the rules to pray at a secret mosque. And this like there were complaints, I think, to the council and everything. So this kind of toxic news packaging was just one of the main far-right activities when it came to the pandemic. I'm just gonna end here. I think I'm nearly at my eight minutes. On a slightly more positive note, one thing we have seen, uh, we've been working on the, on a report on COVID and the far right, it will be coming out in January, is that uh, that hasn't been as successful as they would want it to. The far right was as surprised as everyone else by the pandemic. And so when everyone was scrambling, worried about their health and the lockdown, the same narratives of Muslims and refugees just fell on deaf ears. So that was a slight, at least for the first few months. So that was slightly positive. And I'm going to end here. Thank you, Sophia, for that um, you've touched on so many different aspects and so many more important aspects um, of this discussion. I'm very, very conscious there's 20 minutes left and I've got tons of comments and Q&As coming in at the moment. And we also had a massive discussion, right, um, planned. So I'm gonna run straight to one of the things you touched on, Sophia, in your talk about the cartoons of Prophet Muhammad, peace and mercy and salutations be upon him and the impact that's had in France and in locally and across the world. And the whole debate on the cartoons of the prophet, are they freedom of expression? Are they freedom of speech? Or is it actually an insult? And should there be hate crime laws around that? Um, I'll let Dr. Jennifer start with her response. Okay, I'll have a go. <laughs> and Safia and Mufti Ahmed, um, you you save me then if I'm com go completely off tangent. <laughs> um, well, I'll, I'll start by saying that everything that is covered by freedom of speech doesn't need to be said. I mean, that's a very, that's a very general principle, but maybe one that we can agree on. Everything that is covered by freedom of speech doesn't need to be said. Everyone that is covered by, everything that is covered by freedom of speech is not constructive and it's not helpful. Um, so that's the first point I would make um, other than that, um, and it's funny when I think back, like when we started thinking about this question for the first time, it's been years, it's been years and we keep on, keep on discussing the same questions that keep, they keep on coming up and it's sad in a way that we don't seem to be moving forward, right? And we still need to have these discussions. Um, one, one, um, way of figuring out if some, something is helpful to say or constructive to say is, um, is to think about, I mean, I, cartoons can be funny. They can be really funny, they can be constructive, but when it is a majority um, hitting down on a minority that is, already, that is already being marginalized and that is already being, um, um, being attacked. Um, I mean, that's for me personally when um, it stops being funny. 
right? So it's not just about cartoons. It's not just about can we show cartoons of this person, that person. Um, it's for me. It's always about the wider context, the societal context. Um, yeah, that's what I would say. And um, maybe just a note um, on having these discussions with regards to something that has ha happened elsewhere, right? I mean, obviously we are affected by what happens in France. It's not that far away. Um, and we, we do feel it, um, we, we do feel like we can relate to it because um, yeah, we see things that we link these events to things that happen in our country. But um, unless we actually are very familiar with the context in France, I would always be um, cautious as a, as a lay person, right? Who doesn't specialize in what's going on in other countries. And it might be France, it could be other parts of the world. Um, because context matters, context really matters. And I think we need to be careful if we don't have the necessary background, if we're not familiar with what exactly is the situation when it comes to state, um, state religion, um, religions when it comes to Islamophobia and racism in France, if you don't know all the context and let's just be careful and let's listen to people um, who do know, um, like Safia, for example. Thank you, Dr. Jennifer. And with that, I think, Safia, let's get your thoughts on this. Uh, I mean, the, the, the complicating thing is I, I can talk about France all day. I mean, I, I often tend to, but um, I'm, I'm trying to think of an answer that it can be uh, summarized in a minute. Um, but the, the main thing I think we have to separate is when it comes to France is there's the issue of free speech, there's the issue of the cartoon, and this is something that comes up over and over again. We saw it with Charlie Hebdo and uh, 2016 and the cartoons of the Prophet then, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So there, are, there is a long history of this, and that's a debate to be had. And then there's the debate of violence and uh, an act of terrorism committed linked to that. And, and the problem is often when those two are completely mixed up in the debate. So you either are on the side of the violence or you are on the side of freedom of speech. Uh, and it becomes a very black and white debate. And that's often how you get sucked into, uh, I mean, when you look at the French media conversations, that's what you get kind of just torn into. Um, and one interesting thing which was brought to my attention uh, yesterday was that apparently last week the European Court of Human Rights ruled um, that insulting uh, the Islam's prophet is not covered by freedom of expression because it goes beyond the per permissible limits of an objective debate and could stir up prejudice. This was not linked to what happened in France. This was based on a case in Austria um, of uh, a woman who held seminars where she insulted the prophet. But um, it's, it, it's interest, interesting to see, as Dr. Jennifer said, um, just because you're allowed to say it, you also have to think about what the general public deems acceptable. So it goes back to uh, mainstreaming and the Overton window and where that is when it comes to Islam compared to where it is with other uh, groups, for example. Thank you, Sophie. I think that's a very important point which you raised. And I've, I've seen this when I've had debates locally as well and online where you're either condoning the violence or you're condoning the cartoons. There's no middle ground, which is actually, no, we condemn the violence, but we also condemn the cartoons and that's it. And I think that's missing from this whole argument. Mufti Ahmed, your take on this? Uh, 
Okay, yeah. So, um, first of all, I think it's it's important to point out that no Muslim and mainstream we're talking about here would 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 um, condone any violence. So we're not talking about violence. So you know, sometimes you know, I, I've been listening to some debates online um, and radio, and what what ends up happening is that instead of the discussion being about whether it's freedom of speech or not, the discussion tends to become particularly by the host. Oh, but should they have committed the act of violence. I don't think anyone accepts that the violence uh, the, the, uh, perpetuated by uh, against um, Samuel Patti and anyone else um, is acceptable or is, is part of Islam. So that's that's one point to make clear that that's got nothing to do with Islam. And the discussion here, we're not having about what kind of, uh, should, should there be violence or not? There shouldn't be no violence. However, um, is it free speech or not? Of course, I, uh, as, I don't think it's free speech simply because it's insulting and dehumanizing, dehumanization of, of a minority. And as I, and I showed in my presentation, what happened before, um, uh, what happened during the Nazi era, they depicted Jews in a very derogatory manner and that led to violence. Uh, because they were a minority and that's what's happening here um, making fun of muslims and making fun of those things which are precious to muslims is contributing to the violence and dehumanization of muslims and it, it, it perpetuates discrimination um, so that, that's why i don't think it's free speech because free speech is about explain what your opinion is. there's no opinion in this you know what what opinion is there in caricaturing the messenger of a of, of prophet muhammad وسلم, the messenger of islam there's no there's no opinion in that uh, it's just literally mocking and it's mockery and insult. So I don't see what the free speech element in that. What 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 is free speech about? It? There's no there's no opinion in that. Um, and if you look at France's own um, hypocrisy in this, um, I, I'm just I've got an article uh, by the Amnesty about, uh, which is in um, recorded by Amnesty International that um, just this year um, eleven convictions were on um, those people. So let me just read this out. Uh, yeah, so this uh, in June this year, the European Court of Human Rights found that convictions of 11 activists in France for campaigning for boycott of Israeli products violated their free speech. So in France, just this year, they uh, prosecuted uh, 11 individuals uh, for boycotting Israeli products. Um, so where's the freedom of speech in that? Um, so as, as you can see, this is this is hypocrisy. One rule for Muslims and one rule for um, non-Muslims. So th there's a lot of research and you look at what France has done within their own community. But yeah, I think that's my that's my point. And I'd just like to stop there and move on to the next question. Thank you, Mufti Ahmed. I think um, Shaf Islam raised, raised a very important point to the panelists, which is Section 29 of the Public Order Act protects the right to ridicule and show uh, antipathy as part of freedom of expression. This goes beyond just criticizing religion. Is it time to amend the Public Order Act? And I think that's someone, something for all of us to reflect in. And for those participants, I feel really strongly about this. That's something to talk to your members of parliament about and your local leaders. Um, one thing that was raised earlier, and I know it's a discussion point as well, conscious of time again, um, terminology and terminology like Islamist, the term Islamist, does it create more problems and do we need to review, reform and change that term? Um, let's start with Mufti Ahmed. Okay, so um, yes, the problem with using words of Islamist uh, or jihadist um, is because then it gives that impression that there is the jihadi element of what they are doing. Um, because Jihad in Islam, there is a concept of jihad in Islam and no one can deny that. And that's not something which we are embarrassed about. So jihad is an act 
uh, of defense, self-defense in Islam. Um, just the way all 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 uh, countries have a policy, a foreign policy. They have a policy on uh, war. If you look at um, all countries, they have a document which governs how they engage in war. Um, so in the same way, Islam has a document, or Islam has a set of laws which um, defines how they should conduct themselves if there is an if there is hostility. So that is considered to be jihad. So that is Islam, and there's no nothing nothing to hide in that. Uh, so, but by using the word jihadist to label those acts which are un-Islamic somehow gives that impression that what they are doing is actually part of Islam. Um, so I, I totally abhor and reject those terminologies. The, it's, it's extremists who have um, who come from a Muslim faith, but you don't, you don't, it's not Islamist, it's not jihadist. So there's nothing Islam about it. There's nothing of, of the real jihad about it. So yeah, it causes more problems. And then it somehow gives the impression that Islam is like this and they are doing it because Islam teaches them. Thank you, Mum. Uh, Dr. Jennifer, your thoughts. <laughs> Get ready. <laughs> um, I don't know. I really don't know. I'm really torn on this. Um, I'm really torn on this. I get what you say, um, Mufti Ahmed, about people associating acts of violence um, with the religion if we use a term like Islamist, right? I do get that. But at the same time, you mentioned um, comparative approaches earlier, right? You said, like, let's try and see what this feels like if we, rather than speaking about Muslim women being oppressed, let's try and see what it feels like if we speak about Jewish women being oppressed. And then all of a sudden, something that seems acceptable when we speak about Muslims feels like really um, cringeworthy and just inappropriate when we speak about Jewish or Muslim, um, Christian women, right? And I agree with that, and I actually really like that approach, and I use it a lot in my own work as well, right, to try and draw these parallels. So when I thought about this question, I thought, let's maybe try this here as well, right? So we speak about Islamist violence. No one speaks about Christianist violence or Jewishist, I mean, you can't even pronounce that, right? So people don't use these terms. What do they do? Because there is terrorism committed by a Christian group, there is terrorism committed by um, Jewish groups, right, by Hindu groups, and so on. What do they do? Buddhist groups as well, something that we tend to forget a lot um, in this part of the world. Um, what do they do? They don't speak about um, Christianist violence they, or terrorism, they speak about Christian terrorism, and Jewish terrorism, and Hindu terrorism. So if we want to draw that parallel, if we want to get the same treatment that others are getting, right? Um, actually worse, right? Because we will then be speaking, and, and unfortunately you have some people who do that, right? Which is even worse than Islamist, am I? Um, you know. So that's just one thought. Um, I, I also think that I um, respectfully disagree with the point, Mufti Ahmed, that you made about um, this is not about Islam, it's just about extremists who come from a Muslim background. I don't think it's as simple as that. I really don't. And I think we can't stop the analysis there. Because as a matter of fact, regardless of what we believe um, Islam says about violence, right? And the very limited condition when, when it is acceptable, regardless of what we believe and regardless of what like, um, 
generations and generations of Islamic scholars have told us about that, right? Regardless of that, these groups, they are not just a bunch of Muslims who just commit terrorism, but they actually, they explicitly link it to Islam, right? They use narratives that are rooted in our faith tradition. So I don't think we can say, oh, it has nothing to do with Islam. What we can say, and I think it's really, this is not just nitpicking, right? And like being around with words here, I think that language is actually so important in this context, right? So um, I think we can say this is not supported, this form of terrorism, uh, this form of violence is not supported by the vast majority of Islamic scholars and the vast majority of Muslim lay people now and uh, from an historical point of view, right? But these groups, they still find something and they still latch on some narratives and on some terms, right? And if we want to address this, then we need to have conversations about that, right? Then we need to think about what is it that, um, how are these groups able to distort the message? The message that is a message of peace, right? And compassion and peaceful coexisting for like the vast majority of us. And yeah, and I sometimes feel that when we just say, oh, it has nothing to do with Islam, then that's like an easy way out, right? And we are, like a lot of us do feel like we're under attack, right? So I do understand where that's coming from. I was like, oh, no, no, right? But I think it's a bit too easy. Now, that's a lot of blah, blah. <laughs> I told you guys I'm an academic, so we're good, yeah, right? Um, at doing that, talking. Um, that's a lot of blah, blah to say that I'm not really sure, like in terms of um, um, in terms of the terminology. I do agree it is problematic. I do see the point of people who say like, "Oh, I don't want my faith, right, to be associated with um, with these people's um, acts of violence." And um, if you look at what is happening on social media, in the conventional um, media, in political discourses, right, um, then we really want to do everything to separate the two really heard any convincing um, alternatives yet. A colleague of mine um, was speaking about um, Rizwan uh, Mustafa, and you, you should check out his work. He's based at the University of Huddersfield. That's really, really interesting research. Um, so he suggested faith claimed terrorism. Faith claimed terrorism, because that's basically what they do, right? Commit terrorism, and they claim our faith, right? But then the problem is you will still want to be specific in some instances. So then we will still end up with people calling it Islamic faith claimed terrorism. So like the, the association of the two terms is still gonna be there. So yeah. I'm, um, I'm not really sure. I'm, yeah, um, I haven't no, found a solution yet. Yeah, so, if you don't mind, conscious of but, time. Yeah, go on, go on. What I wanna add here, right here is, I think this is a really, really good discussion and I wish we had the time to sit here all night and really go into this because I think Dr. Jennifer raises very valid points. And I think we need to have these critical discussions to get to the to get to where we want to be. And we do need different perspectives. We all can agree on one thing, but if we don't have this critical side to it, what's the point? But before I get back to you, Mufti Ahmed, to respond to that, I just want to give Sophia a moment to give her views on that term. Um, I'll, I'll keep it very short. Um, I, I agree with aspects of what you've both said. 
um, in, a, in an academic world, if I'm, if I'm writing for my political Islam class and I use Islamist in my essay, it's a lazy term. It doesn't explain much and it doesn't um, uh, really encompass everything that is said. But there's a reason why we're pushing for the Islamophobia definition to be widely adopted, because otherwise you just, instead of talking about Islamophobia, you get dragged into a conversation about how legitimate the term is and the whole conversation is over. So I understand the importance of using the right terms, but pragmatically, I don't see, uh, as Dr. Jennifer said, I don't see um, the a right non three word alternative um, that will be used by people generally. So in a sense, I mean, anti-Semitism, technically, if you analyze the word, uh, does not mean what it means. You know, it's anti-Semitism, like Semites, who are not only Jews, but it's the word that's kind of entered the conversation. And I, I think Islamist is just here to stay in a sense. So while I admire perhaps people who want to be more accurate, who want to distance it from the religion, um, I, I've, I've, I admit I've kind of given up on that fight and just fo focused on other aspects, uh, problematic aspects like the term Islamophobia. Thank you, Sophie. I think Dr. Jennifer has some technical issues, so she's kind of left us. But Mufti Ahmed, just... Um... Oh my God. <laughs> okay, yeah. So what, there was just, just two quick points. So I accept, so she made two points. One was about... Um, not having a proper alternative, which I accept. So, um, you know, Yusuf, you were present in the presentation I gave last year to the um, special counter extremism uh, group, and I suggested some alternatives. So, for example, Khawarij, Dalin, which have been used in Islamic history to refer to those people who have um, twisted um, the 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 uh, and distorted the teachings of Islam. So those or perhaps which we can push into the mainstream. Uh, so that, that was that, but that, that's one thing which I accept. One thing which obviously I don't accept is that um, the idea that it has something to do with Islam. There are certain, the, every, there will be people from every community who will latch on to um, some kind of narrative and present that as the mainstream narrative. What my point here is that if Islam, um, if Islam is what which causes them uh, to do that act, then 1.8 billion Muslims would be doing that act as well if they are Muslims. Um, Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, he said, that these people who don't respect the young, uh, sorry, respect the old and take care of the young are not from amongst us. What he's trying to say here is that um, there'll be Muslims, but what Prophet is saying in this hadith that they are not part of the mainstream Islam because they're not doing what the teachings actually teach you the Islamic teaching. So I, I, I hold my view that uh, this has got nothing to do with Islam and they are not really acting on the teachings of Islam. And Prophet he himself has said that about people who may have said, La but they don't act on the mainstream teachings of Islam. And Prophet himself has said, these people are not part of amongst us. So I, I, I continue and I hold my view that what these people do has got nothing to do with Islam. It's their own distorted, contorted view of Islam but it's not something which uh, can be blamed or I have, I as a Muslim needs to, needs to apologize. Uh, but yeah, so I hold love you. So Dr. Jennifer, uh, one thing I, I support you in, I agree in, but the other, I, I hold my stance. Thank you, Mufti Ahmed. We've run over time, so I'm gonna give it to each panel speaker to just say what we can do as individuals as community to challenge the rise of Islamophobia 
and what we need to do in terms of being activists, speaking to political leaders and engaging them in part of this conversation. So one minute per answer and Dr. Jennifer, I'll start with you. Sorry, Yusuf, can you repeat the question, please? I think I forgot you it You me in that moment <laughs> when I was like thinking about something else, sorry. Um, what would you say to our, the, the panel and everyone that's joined us today? What should they do to challenge the rise of Islamophobia? And how should they hold the media, polit political leaders to account uh, in their role as part of this discussion? Yusuf, that's the $1 billion um, question. <laughs> <laughs> if we knew, we wouldn't be sitting here and trying to trying to find a solution, right? Um, I think um, I think one key point is that if you are Muslim and you are affected by this, like personally, right? Um, if you wake up every morning like the woman whose story I told at the beginning of this um, event. You don't have to do anything because just surviving in this in this in this climate is enough um so the, the onus is not on you to change something you can and i would encourage you to do it if you feel like you have the strength for it but if you don't that's absolutely fine and fo just focus on making it through the day um right um if you can do something there's so much going on already. So look at what is happening out there um, and see if you can find initiatives that you um, that you feel that you can contribute something to. Maybe you feel like you don't, maybe you have a completely different approach and maybe other groups are not ready for that and then set up your own. Um, but I think the first step, and maybe that's again the researcher in me speaking, the first step would basically be doing a literature review <laughs> and getting, um, and getting a good uh, mapping, right? Like, which would be more of a practitioner-focused term. Get a good understanding of what's happening out there because there is really, really amazing groups that do really, really good work. Also be aware of your strengths, right? Everyone doesn't need to um, speak on the panel. Everyone doesn't need to be researched. Everyone doesn't need to look at um, the topic from an Islamic theological perspective, right? People have different strengths and they can contribute in different ways. Yeah, and if you're not a Muslim, then do something for God's sake, because the onus here, yes, it is on you. It is on you, because it's not right what it's happening. With regards to Islamophobia, onus is on you. With regards to other issues, um, onus on us. Um, but I want, I want, I want to see more um, non-Muslims stand up, and I want to um, see more non-Muslims support Muslim initiatives. Because frankly, I'm also a bit wary of um, some non-Muslim-led Islamophobia initiatives um so whatever we do this is not a minute right i'm so sorry Yusuf. yeah so what we do it needs to be informed by the experiences of the people who are actually going through it and who are suffering um, from it right so i don't want another non-muslim who sits somewhere in an office and thinks i'm gonna tackle this issue now and this is how i'll do it we don't need that right we have enough people who don't know what they're talking about let's bring in some people who don't know what they're talking about um still not a minute and let's bring um i'm so sorry let's bring research together with civil society and with practitioners right like all these different groups all these different stakeholders can all call something let's bring them all together because um this is a multi-dimensional issue and we can only really effectively and sustainably tackle it if we look at all the different dimensions i'm so sorry 
this was too long. <laughs> no, no, thank you so much. I think you raised some really important points. And one that I caught on straight away was being an upstander, not a bystander. And that applies for every single community. If you see another community suffering, we will have a responsibility to stand as allies for other communities. If people are victims of Islamophobia, other communities should stand with the Muslim community. If people are victims of anti-Semitism or homophobia, whatever it might be, disability, hate, other communities should stand with them as well because we are stronger together. Uh, Mufti Ahmed, one minute, please. Okay, yeah, so um, I alluded to some points and some initiative in my presentation, but because of limited time, I had to rush through it. So um, um, I welcome this opportunity now. So I'll, I'll focus on three things. Um, I'm going to be a bit more optimistic. I think there's lots we can do and which is working. Um, and yes, I agree with Dr. Jennifer. There's not, the onus is not upon us to do anything, but as Muslims, um, whatever we can do to promote Islam uh, and to present the correct version of Islam and bring harmony in the world, that, that, that is an Islamic, um, uh, and that's, that's an Islamic action which is celebrated in Islam. So I'm going to give you three, three things. One is um, uh, Islamic awareness events and multi-faith events. Uh, uh, organizing them in your local mosque, uh, local community center, uh, school, visit schools, um, I think that's very, very important. That's very helpful. Uh, when I, when I, so let me just give you this one example. Um, lots of people are um, unaware of what really Islam is about. Um, so I done a presentation to a group of eight uh, Christian priests and they were lovely, educated, highly educated, lovely individuals. One of them uh, say, uh, confided in me towards and oh, I want to make a confession. What was a confession that I thought Muslims did want to ban Christmas? And why was this? Because most of them, they don't have experience with Islam and Muslims. Their information about Islam comes from comes from the media. Um, and, and I usually joke that when uh, me growing up, I thought all Russians were spies because my understanding of Russians was from the media. Only until you read up yourself and uh, research and educate yourself do you become aware of what the reality is. So educating uh, non-Muslims about the true aspects of Islam. Uh, number two, I think multi-faith events. Uh, I, I focus on multi-faith events and social action groups. So we, we have in Nottingham, we've got food banks, we've got um, covid relief trust all of these things will present islam and muslims in a in a more uh, positive manner so i think those two things um uh, are of which we all can do um, and number three challenge it uh, you know bystander upstander intervention um i think that's that's very important be a bit active uh, right right to your local mp be a bit more uh, be, become activists and join groups so these three things i think everyone can do um and to challenge uh, islamophobia thank you mufti ahmed and safia uh one minute right um so i i completely get what dr jennifer is saying about you know how it's not technically your responsibility but the pragmatic side is who else is going to do it you know uh if you're you're not at fault for it but things you can do if you want things to change uh already been mentioned i feel in in different aspects but allies are one of the best thing you can do because it spreads your platform. And once you're a, a big enough group, things actually start to change. Um, and I'm gonna say something slightly controversial, uh, but being pragmatic about that too, organizing, for example, in France, now you're seeing a lot of organizing, especially with the youth, when it comes to different groups. And that means letting aside the purity test sometimes. And, you know, I'm not gonna work with this one because 20 years ago they said this. Um, I feel like there has to be um, a, a bit of a pragmatic sense of coming together 
uh, and this is with Muslim uh, organizations, but also without. Um, having Muslims just more generally, this was NGO related, but just generally for the Muslim community, just going out there, being in every field. We don't just need academics uh, or, or, or journalists. We need people in, in every field being visible, being part of the society, uh, legal especially. Uh, in France, they're trying to break down the CCF right now um, after the attacks, which is uh, completely crazy. It's, it's a reporting Islamophobia type organization, um, but it also has several lawyers on the team. And I think that helps, you know, knowing your rights, knowing where you can fight, and taking it to court, not letting it lie down, because that does create a precedent, you know, the, the first person who is discriminated against in France uh, for the headscarf, for example, taking it to court and allowing that precedent to happen for other people to follow. Um, and then finally, it can seem like a lot, you know, you have different levels of Islamophobia. You know, you can go from the UK with Boris Johnson and letterboxes to France, where they're trying to ban all sorts of Muslim practices and the radicalization, to China with what's happening with the Uyghur over there and the forced sterilization, and I won't get into it. So it can seem there's too much, and what am I going to change, you know, especially with big things like China. I think the important part is not to stop there the the okay well this is too big for me because it really is a kind of a global problem whether you're muslim not muslim everyone does have a part to play thank you sophia and you absolutely touched on some really important points there we all have a part to play you know we haven't even gone into the plight of Uyghur muslims and the discrimination and the genocide of the Uyghurs and how they've been oppressed in china amongst other places but time is short what can i do and i think um Brother Farouk from uh, Redbridge has said, we need another session. I completely agree. We've got some fantastic minds here today. The conversations have been really enlightening. They've been really interesting. And it's a shame I don't have enough time um, with you, but for sure we'll explore getting you all together again um, with our communities and having a further discussion uh, on some of the things that we've just touched on today. Thank you all for joining us today. I'd like to thank Dr. Jennifer Mufti Ahmed Safiya Kari Usman, who's left us, and Councillor Jazatswa, who's also left us for all their comments and sharing their thoughts today. Um, till next time, we will do this again for sure. And thank you, and see you soon.